We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. How do you heal from a toxic relationship? You might think the answer is simple. Leave. But that's when the real work can start. Unfortunately, you're probably in a place of complete exhaustion, and it's very easy to get overwhelmed. That's why I'm pleased to welcome back certified relationship coach Tara Blair Ball. She's the author of a new book called Reclaim and Recover, Heal from Toxic Relationships with a Seven-Step Guided Journal. If you find our conversation interesting, you might like to also check out her previous appearance when we discussed attachment theory. All the details of Tara and her work will be in the show notes. Now, what I love about your work, Tara, is it comes from direct personal experience. You left a a bad relationship that made you feel small and inconsequential, but you felt crazier once you'd left it than when you were in it. Now, how could that be? I think that's the whole nature of toxic relationships. And I think that's why it can make it so difficult to recover from is that I just didn't understand how I could hate someone so much and yet want to be with them again. How I could have spent so much time miserable in that relationship and yet feel like that was the best I could ever have and that I was missing out on that misery that I'd had for so long. And I think that just makes it so difficult in recovering from because I personally didn't feel like there was enough literature out there to describe or label what I was going through. And in actuality, I mean, I know today and a lot of us are more familiar with the term trauma bond, but that's what I was in is I was I was craving and comfortable with that insanity that comes from being in an extremely unhealthy relationship that is based and founded on chaos. (laughs) And so to have anything else seemed boring you know, and I I didn't know how to function when there wasn't that chaos in my life. And I felt like that was the best I would ever have. It, it was so passionate. It was so romantic, but, you know, was it really? <laughs> was it really? <laughs> and I do like that they now have this term post-traumatic relationship syndrome, which relates it. It has the qualities of PTSD, but what makes it difficult again to recover from is the idea that it's not so much about leaving the traumatic experience. It is about also really dealing with the deep wounds to your self-esteem, your feelings of self-worth, the fact that you crave and sort of want that chaos, as I mentioned earlier, and how it, it can't just be fixed the way you might PTSD, that it, it has a, a different variance, specifically because we all need to have relationships. So How are you going to heal relationships while also having relationships? It's not something you can just give up. And I mean, I think you put it really beautifully. And I think this also begins to understand the complexity of it. You miss the life we had together rather than the person. Tell me about that. I think so many unhealthy relationships are founded on a fantasy 
that we may or may not realize that we're buying into or subscribing to. And I got married and fell in love with someone based on a fantasy or the potential rather than the reality of the person I was in a relationship with. And because of that fantasy, I really hung on much longer than I should have because I kept feeling like, oh, I'll find something to change, control, manipulate to make that fantasy become a reality instead of really just acknowledging that, for one, he may not have ever become my hope for the potential. His potential may have been entirely different from what I wanted or expected him to become, as well as the fact that his reality just wasn't acceptable as it was, which meant I was running around in circles trying to make something happen that wasn't possible at that time. Now, let's actually name what the fantasy is because um, it's so powerful and often a lot of sort of romantic movies sort of uh, reinforce it. So let's just lay out exactly what the fantasy is. So I think this is the hardest term to really label it as, but love addiction talks a lot about the term of the fantasy, the delusion. My fantasy with my particular ex is he was a drug addict. He got married to me knowing that he was actively using and hiding it from me. Oops. And so, yeah, oops is a big word. But I didn't, I didn't find that out until eight years later. He was very good at hiding then in that case. He was very good at hiding, yes. But also, I just think denial makes you so blind. I mean, of course, I could look back and pinpoint the moments of, oh, yeah, that was clearly when he was using drugs. But at the time, I had just made this made these excuses, these rationalizations, these justifications about what he was doing. Oh, he was just craving sweets or he's just had a hard day or he just really wants to clean the house. (laughs) These things I would say that were all based in my love for him as well as just my, my attachment to that fantasy, that attachment to being willfully blind. And that, I think that was the hardest thing about trying to recover from that relationship is how angry I was at myself, how stupid and embarrassed and ashamed I felt that I had stayed as long as I had, that I had ignored blatant red flags, blatant signs of issues. And that anger at myself is very unique, I think, to toxic and unhealthy relationships because we feel so responsible. Like, why did I stay? Why was I there? Why did I go back? That when we finally leave, we just feel this anger that of all the time we wasted, why we stayed so long. And that anger at myself was very difficult to deal with and process. And one of your steps that will break down the steps actually addresses that anger. But before we mm-hmm. sort of look into the journey, I think we need to have a good, clear definition of what do we mean by a toxic relationship? Because the word is sort of thrown around a lot these mm-hmm. days. So let's just be entirely clear. What do you mean? So I outline this in the book because I, as you said, I think it's very, imp- it's sort of a buzzword. So I think it's important to define it clearly, but a toxic relationship just means an unhealthy relationship. So there's unhealthy patterns of relating between you and your particular partner. And it doesn't mean that that particular person is a toxic or bad or awful person, or that you're a toxic, bad or awful person, but it does mean that your relationship together is extremely unhealthy. So this often shows up as, you know, there are patterns of abuse, patterns of criticism, contempt, feeling 
humiliated in the relationship, small, your feelings are invalidated. Your basis of self-worth is often dependent on that relationship. You feel like you have to earn love. So a toxic or unhealthy relationship is just a description for any relationship where it's abusive, codependent, an unfair power balance, you know, it's one-sided. It just is a big umbrella term for all of those unhealthy patterns of relating. And with power imbalances, who had the power? Was it you as the non-addict who sort of got her stuff together? Or was it him because he was hiding stuff and you didn't have all the facts? I did not have the power in that relationship. I felt my self-esteem and self-worth was entirely based on what I could do for my partner. And so, you know, because it was based on someone outside of myself, something external, of course, it was very insecure of a basis. So it's not like I could, I, I didn't feel like I could handle certain things on my own. And if he was mad at me, for example, I was devastated or if something wasn't going right, I felt personally responsible for it. So he was really let off the hook because I took on the burden of, I felt like all of the relationship problems were my fault. I felt like anytime we had a fight, it was because I had said something wrong. I should have said it differently. I should have said it at a different time. I just felt personally responsible for all of the issues of the relationship. And so I didn't feel like I had any power because it felt like Nothing I did worked out the way that I wanted it to. I wish I would have felt like I had power, but I I didn't feel that way. I can hear lots of people nodding along and recognising this. And the temptation when you're in such a bad place is to try and rush ahead, get the healing done as quickly as possible. And in a sense, that's the worst thing you can do, really, isn't it? Explain why. In my relationship, the more that I did personal work the more it ended up being that I was trying to drag my partner. Because, for example, I was trying to get healthier and practice, you know, better communication styles, better conflict resolution. But as I was getting healthier, he wasn't. And so I could either stay in that relationship and stay unhealthy, or I could get healthier and leave the relationship. And unfortunately, for the longest time, I chose to stay in that relationship. And I believe strongly that the health of a relationship is dependent on the least healthy member because when you're with someone over and when you're with someone all of the time of course the way they react the way they act think and say things is going to greatly influence you too so my relationship was as unhealthy as my unhealthy partner so staying in that relationship meant that i really couldn't progress or heal as much as i would have liked because i needed to leave that relationship and make strides in that myself. And so getting healthier meant leaving that relationship, honestly. If he'd been able to meet me halfway to do his own personal work, there might have been a possibility, but I'm very uncertain and unsure about that. And I don't think there's any reason to hope for that too. Now, we're going to go start going through the seven steps. Are they different if you've been left rather than like you doing the leaving? Or are they actually exactly the same? They're the same. And I think that's a good point that you make that it can feel different or worse, maybe if you're the one who's left or you're the one who didn't feel like you had control in the end of the relationship. I will say for clients that I've worked with, I was the one who did the leaving, but for clients that I've worked with who were left, 
their struggle was primarily in letting go of that fantasy and not taking 100% responsibility for being left. So the step is still the same, but I think the work can be harder because it is that recognizing that it wasn't the right relationship for you and it had nothing to do with you and you weren't some awful person because you'd previously been discarded. So I do think there's more work and more energy in that work, but the steps are the same for both. Okay, so we get to go through the seven steps and we're going to talk about them. I, I wish they were nice, easy ones, but they're not. No. But <laughs> so step one, wave goodbye. Step two, live happily ever after. Ah. Oh, so, I wish life was like that, right? Yep. Anyway, let's have a look at the first one. The first one is mapping thoughts and feelings. So tell me about that. So for that, and this, I found this particularly with myself and just from working with clients, is that leaving a toxic relationship, we don't necessarily have a good sense of our feelings and thoughts in general. And what we often find is that they are sort of stuck in one and they just go in a loop. And you probably see this plenty of times with clients too, is that, for example, I was really stuck on the thought that I would never find somebody who loved me as much as my ex-husband. That was a loop that was stuck in my head, as well as my feeling of just overwhelming anger. I just was furious. And most of that anger was directed as my, at myself, as I said earlier. So mapping your thoughts and feelings is really about getting more in touch with everything else you might be feeling. So it's not just anger. Anger is often a secondary emotion anyway. A lot of my anger was also just sadness that I wasn't giving myself space to feel. Sadness that I had chosen to be in that relationship, sadness for staying in that relationship, sadness for the change in my circumstances. So primary and secondary feelings, let's uh, differentiate between those two things. Yeah. So primary feelings include a feeling wheel that's sourced from Dr. John Gottman's work that gives you sort of the primary and then the edge feelings or the secondary feelings. So mad, sad, glad, and scared are primary, but then that can just sort of filter out to, you know, mad can also be irritated. There's different smaller acronyms of those feelings that could actually be a better fit than just mad. You know, irritated isn't the same as just mad. But anger as a primary emotion is often a vehicle for a secondary emotion like sadness. And I think that's always valuable to actually look at what is behind that anger. You know, it might be fear. It might be something else. But looking at your emotions and seeing if there's actually another one in there that might be the one that you need to actually feel to actually be able to move past the anger. Because once I sort of got anger out of the way, sadness is really what I needed to deal with. And you're right, fear is the other one that is the sort of the ugly sister of sadness, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's one that's very difficult, especially if our thoughts really confirm whatever our fear is about. So my fear, for example, was that I would never find another relationship. I'd be alone forever. And that's a really damning fear. That's a really painful, scary fear that could have fueled a lot of my actions to be pretty unhealthy. And was your fear a realistic fear? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm now happily remarried. I have another child. I'm, I'm very happy today in my relationship. And when I think back at on how I felt during 
the recovery phase of that relationship, to me, it's very, it's just very sad. The things I was telling myself, like no one will ever treat me, you know, as well as he did. When in reality, it was well, we have abusive to hope. unhealthy. Yeah, we had to have to hope that nobody treats you like that right, again. Right, exactly. And and that's the hard part of recovering from an unhealthy relationship is I started the relationship with my current husband. I found myself thanking him for not yelling at me because uh. that, that was my normal. You know, he found it so weird. He was like, why are you thanking me for not yelling at you? That's like basic human decency. But I didn't, I didn't have a good gauge of that based on my previous relationship. So the next step is narrating your toxic relationship. So this, I think, is really valuable because all of us after a relationship tend to see a relationship as all good or all bad. And we often place a lot of blame on the former partner. So we don't necessarily see our part in that. So we're seeing a relationship as, as black and white, and we don't necessarily have a lot of role in the way that relationship went. So this step is really about seeing the relationship more realistically, as well as seeing our part in it. So when I did something similar when I was recovering from my unhealthy relationship is I really had to look at what were the red flags I ignored in the beginning? What were things I saw and purposely chose to think I could change or control? And that was very helpful when I began dating it again, because now I had a clear roadmap of these are red flags and I know how these will turn out. So what can I specifically avoid and what do I know that is in my habit or my makeup of being attracted to? Because my ex was very familiar to me when we started dating. But just because it was familiar didn't mean it was healthy. And that's something I was going to sort of take up with you. Do you think you have to just not narrate this toxic relationship, but actually look at it within the context of all your relationships? Because, you know, I'm prepared to think that uh, there were probably some toxic people in your childhood as well as your husband. I do include that in the stat that it is, I mean, generally... We don't just have one toxic relationship. It doesn't just come out of left field. It usually is built early on, like you mentioned, in childhood. And so I do have a thing in there that it's it's helpful to, to include it for friendships, family relationships, just really looking and narrating those things that were unacceptable to you, but you ignored, boundaries you should have set, you could enforce, etc. And the reason you don't is because... Nobody else you've seen has ever done it. Probably your mother didn't do it or your father didn't do it. And so, you know, how can you possibly know what boundaries are if you never actually have seen them? So um, I think that's important to talk about. And I think that possibly leads us on to the next point, which is developing empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was, for me, having so much anger with myself, it was incredibly important for me to just recognize that my past self made the choices that they did based on the information that they had. So having some real empathy and compassion for my, the self that stayed, that picked that partner, the self that stayed in that relationship and the self that bravely and courageously, because that's how it felt, was that left that relationship. So that compassion, I think, is important. And I think it's the wonderful part of practicing empathy is that when we have empathy for ourselves, it's much easier for us to have empathy for others. And so a lot of that anger I felt towards my ex, for example, started to really go away. 
because I started to work more on forgiving him for the choices that he made. It didn't mean I forgot them. And it doesn't mean I was going to let him back into my life, but I could let go of some of that power his choices had made over me. Now, I'm going to not channel my therapist. I'm going to channel quite a lot of my clients. And they're going to say, you know, why should I be have empathy for somebody who's effed my life up? Mm-hmm. I get it. And I've heard the same thing from, from my clients too. So I, I am very aware of that. What I think having empathy does is makes us a main character in our own story. I don't want my ex to be the main character in my story. I don't want to be so angry and upset at him and thinking about him all the time that he's the main character in my story. And having empathy and compassion to be able to get to that forgiveness piece and let go really puts me in the place I want to be in my own life story. But one of the problems with developing empathy is you've not only got to make have empathy for your anger, you've also got to have empathy for a couple of other ones that we really don't want to even visit. And that is sort of shame and humiliation as well. So help us out. Oh, Oh, shame. Yeah. Those are such tough emotions. And I think that's why it gets back to that empathy piece of really recognizing that the past self just didn't make, that they did make the best choices that they could at the time. But The saving grace or the hope piece of it is that your present self and your future self can make better choices going forward. And I think that's the most painful and helpful part of any kind of self-knowledge is that recognizing where we made those mistakes in the past allows us to not make those same mistakes in the future. And I think this is when really having a therapist or a coach or an analyst or something like that is really helpful because... Shame is just so such a strong emotion, even if we sort of get the sort of the coattails of it, we sort of slam the door and run away. And in fact, I don't think you're going to believe me if I tell you this, but, you know, shame is not as bad as we actually think it is. When you actually have it in the room, it's actually a much smaller emotion and it's a less frightening emotion than we think it's going to be. But, you know, when it's sort of lurking outside, it's like Godzilla. I think the same thing about sadness, too. I I would do anything to avoid being sad, which is part of the uh-huh. reason why my anger, I think, was so great, is that I just didn't want to feel sad. I didn't. And the same thing is that once you actually feel the emotion, it's, it's really more manageable. And the suppressing is worse, <laughs> makes it worse. And we're coming somehow naturally onto the next stage, which is softening emotions. What do you mm-hmm. mean by that? As a little of what I said earlier is just, there are often those first emotions that that we feel. And, oft, you know, anger is often a great indicator that our boundaries are been violated or we need to stand up for ourselves. So anger is that protective emotion. And it comes from a really great place. But anger can very clearly go really bad if it ends up hurting ourself, ourselves and others. But with anger being vehicle emotion, we've got to feel those other emotions to be able to let them go. So softening emotions, the important piece is, and what you mentioned earlier about working with a therapist or coach, is finding some safety in our relationships. 
So finding one person, a few people that you feel safe to express yourselves with is an important part, whether it's a friend, a support group, a therapist or coach, finding some safety in that to be able to feel those other emotions and also safety with yourself, being able to stop shaming yourself and being telling yourself things like, you know, men don't cry or, you know, I, I don't need to feel this or I shouldn't feel that. Allowing yourself that space. A real woman can deal with this. We've got broad yeah. shoulders sort of right. kind of stuff. Yep. And I love your term softening emotions because actually they need to soften before they can fall away. Yeah. Anger is so prickly and barbed and sadness can feel so, I guess, like a stinging pain. You know, it, they all have this painful session with it. But softening them just allows them to not be as overwhelming as they once were. So giving that space. And I also talk about a valuable tool that I recommend to, to anybody, and I'm sure you've mentioned it to clients before too, but the, the act of containment, setting aside actual space to deal with a specific emotion. And I generally did it with sadness. It's what I recommend clients do with sadness because sadness is one of those emotions that if you don't deal with it, it'll just come out whenever. <laughs> you know, I was going to the grocery store wearing sunglasses because I didn't know when I would start weeping. And that made my life very unmanageable. <laughs> so scheduling that containment, which was just 30 you know, I might schedule 30 to 60 minutes where I would just turn off my phone, turn off the TV. I might have a journal and I would just give myself that space to be sad if I was going to choose to use it for that. And that allowed allowed me to sort of move through my day and not let it overwhelm me and all those other times. Yeah, I think a journal time is quite a good one because, you know, that day, it might not be sadness that shows up, it might be anger. You know, you can't actually schedule exactly what feeling you're going to have, but a diary mm -hmm. allows um, whatever needs to come up to come up. So I love that idea of putting aside time for your, for your diary. Now we come on to number five, accepting personal responsibility. How did you do with this one? How did I do <laughs> It took time. <laughs> it took time. And, you know, I was you doing a lot of- You did this. You did that. Right, right, right. And yeah, as I mentioned earlier, part of that narrating the toxic relationship is sort of opening the door to see your own part. You know, what red flags you ignored, things like that. What, what aspects of your behavior or patterns of your behavior influenced aspects of your relationship? So- that's sort of the start of start of starting to see your part. So in terms of accepting personal responsibility, I was working with a therapist, I was working with a coach. So both of those people were definitely very helpful in making me recognize that all I could do was change myself. I would have loved to have changed my ex and maybe we would have still been together if I'd been able to change him in general. But if I wanted to move forward, if I wanted to make better relationship choices for myself in the future, I really needed to look at what I needed to change and address that. But this is really difficult if you're being gaslighted, you've been told it's all your fault, you can end up accepting all the responsibility, not just your half of it, so to speak. Yeah. And I do address that in the specific chapter about not taking responsibility for things that aren't yours. And that can take time to sort of disentangle. So for example, in my previous relationship, 
I was often told I didn't say something the right way. You know, I, sh- I shouldn't have used a certain tone. I, sh- I should have said it at a different time. I should have blah, blah, blah. And I really realized that those were just all avoidance tactics, that these were all his attempts to just avoid or deflect from that conversation at all. And it had nothing to do with the way that I tried to say it. It had everything to do with the fact that my partner was being abusive and avoiding those conversations. And that takes time to work through. It does. And again, that's why it's helpful having a third party or having someone that can really sit down with you or you giving yourself that space and time to really assess that. But it's not always easy to assess our side of something. And this is one of the advantages of giving yourself time with this, mm-hmm. this you know, that there is no rush. So we come on to another really important one. And I think one that we're, I think is going to need some explanation. It's called establishing accountability. So this is where generally most of us can't really heal or recover without some kind of support, some kind of some kind of accountability. And I found this myself, and I see this a lot with clients, as we get to a place where we're like, we're recovered enough. We're, we're fine enough. And so we just kind of want to stall or stop and we're tired of doing the work because that's what it feels like is work or drudgery. We're tired of dredging this stuff up. Or we can rush off into another relationship to sort of stop having to do the work. I think that's another thing that people can do. Absolutely. And I did that. <laughs> I did that myself. So no, no shame Hands in that. Up. <laughs> no shame or or any of that. You know, it was just a part of my journey. I think it's a part of a lot of our journeys. And that's why those relationships are called rebound or bridge relationships. And we pick those people because they generally have the qualities that are extant, but then they usually have a lot of deal breakers or red flags, you know, themselves. And that's why those relationships don't pan out often. So this is an important step just for continuing the process, whatever that process looks for you, whether you continue working with a therapist or coach, finding that attention and commitment. You know, we're, it's so often, especially those of us who've been on unhealthy relationships, it's so easy for us to commit to other people and make promises to other people, but not really to ourselves. And so it's a chapter about how will you stay accountable to your own healing and recovery process? Because even if you jump into a relationship like I did, you'll likely find after that relationship ends or while you're in that relationship that, oh, I really haven't done the healing that I needed to do. And I need to keep going. I need to come back. And it's not about being ashamed or embarrassed and giving up. It is about how do I recommit to the process and try to stay committed and what people can help me do that. Now, a lot of people, they can't get rid of their ex altogether out of their lives. You know, the most common one is you have children together. There you are doing your own accountability. What do you do about your partner's rather shaky accountability? You know, that he or she says they're going to do A, and then they don't. So that's a situation of mine. I have two children with my ex, so he will always be in my life. And that's something that I have to negotiate for myself and work on being the best co-parent I can be. There's a wonderful book called Co-Parenting with a Toxic Ex that I highly recommend. It's by, I have it right here. It's by Amy Baker. And it's very helpful in how to address and negotiate 
those issues. How do I, how do I deal with a co-parent, for example, that's telling our kids awful things about me or who isn't showing up or doing the things that they say? And for myself, I have very limited contact with my ex. We have clear boundaries that I've really enforced, as in we only talk about the children. We only talk about what's best for them. And they have to be the priority. You know, that it's not about me versus the ex, which is part of the reason why it's so important to do that healing work, because your goal is not to hate your ex. Your goal is not to love your ex. It's your goal is to be indifferent. And your goal is not to beat your ex and have the better life than them either, which unfortunately a lot of people try and do too. Correct. Correct. And my ex will, he's very much a Disney dad, which just means that he's the fun parent. And that means I end up being sort of the rule-following, structured parent. And that can be upsetting later when my kids say, oh, we, we have so much fun with daddy. Why don't we have fun with you? But my kids are very young. They're six. And they will learn over time who the right parent is for them. You know, who is the best parent for them? They're developmentally, they're not in that place. And it's not for me to say, oh, that's bad that daddy does that or whatever. It's not my place to do that. They'll learn that on their own. Their brains are still developing and they'll still be developing until they're like 25. <laughs> so, Well, right there is thousands of pounds worth of therapy in those last two sentences. Yeah. Thank you, therapy. <laughs> it's taking a lot of work to get there. I'll tell you that. <laughs> No, but that, I mean, that is, you know, a really difficult place to to reach. So, uh, you know, I, I think you should also say congratulate yourself as, as well for that, because that is the hardest. I think that is so hard, you know, to hold on to the type of parenting you believe in and not to go into that competition of who can out Disney the other person. Or and then say, oh, because they're only wanting to be a Disney dad, I will push them out because that's not what my children need. I mean, that is so tempting to do. And you didn't. So um, I think that's wonderful as well. It does take a lot of work and it's not, it's not easy. You know, I remember when we first started co-parenting, I would get so upset by the lunches he would pack the kids. And I really had to focus on, are my kids sheltered? Are my kids loved? Are they fed? You know, do I really want to pick battles over the fact that their lunches aren't as healthy as mine? Like, is this a battle I really want to fall on? And can I let this go and focus on what really matters? And what really matters always at the end of the day is my relationship with my children. And I don't want to damage that. And mind you, I've also been divorced for years now. I'm remarried, you know, so this this has taken time to to form these beliefs, but they're beliefs that I think are very helpful for my children. And they're sustainable as well. So let's move on to the seventh one, and that is restoring trust. Trust in whom? I mean, everyone. <laughs> for... The big, I mean, I've mentioned this a few times. The big thing for me is how angry I was at myself. And so I, I first needed to start with learning to trust myself again to make the best decisions for myself. And so it is about becoming comfortable, trusting myself, trusting myself to make the right decisions. And I learned the hard way in some of those instances. For example, when I when I did jump into a new relationship, I thought at the time, I was like, this is the best decision. You know, this is good. But then I recognized that it wasn't. 
And I, I was only with that person a couple of months. And I really had to give myself kudos because I stayed with that person just a couple of months instead of nearly 10 years. Like, what progress is that? That even though, yes, I made this mistake, I learned some things I needed to, and I left far sooner than I left that previous relationship. And so, yes, I could still trust myself. And I could trust that even if I did make a wrong decision, that I, I could figure out how to work from it in the future. And it's about really holding on to each of those experiences and seeing them as links in a chain. Like, oh, I can trust myself because I made this decision and adding a new link and a new link and a new link until you can build that. And the same in, in building relationships with other people. That safety chapter is a lot about looking at our relationships beyond just the one with our former romantic partner, you know, friendships, family relationships, and finding safety there and seeing if you can apply that and trusting these other relationships. And that's how I eventually was able to start dating, how I chose my current romantic partner. And it took a lot of work to get there, but it is, it starts small. It starts with us and building that with ourselves. And I think the important thing to say is, although it takes time to build that trust again, it's never too late to do the work. Absolutely. And that's something I hear from clients all the time as I'm you know, I'm so old, I've wasted so much of my life, I blah, blah, blah. And personally, I, I just think there's, it's never too late to be happy. It's just not. So we're going to take a break. We'll be back soon looking at our dilemma for this week. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you are listening to this program and there's something you're struggling with at the moment, I source some of the world's best experts and I could put to one of them your dilemma. So if you would like to send me a dilemma, you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, and you'll find somewhere to participate in the program and you can send details of what you're going through. And I'd like to thank the lady who's done this to me. I had been with my husband for 15 years, married for nine. I found out 18 months ago he was having an affair. I was devastated and I still am. He quickly moved out 12 months ago into an apartment and moved his girlfriend in, but keeps telling me he's still in love with me. I've tried several times to discuss sorting out the finances, but he will not discuss it. All I get is, this is so hard for me, I'm busy, or he simply ignores me. He seems quite happy to carry on paying all the bills whilst living the single life with his girlfriend. He still won't tell our son about her. I think it's time he was told before he finds out from someone else. He keeps saying he will, but he doesn't. He makes his girlfriend go out when he has our son. He's not introduced her to his family and doesn't even talk about her. Basically, she's still his dirty little secret. I told him a couple of weeks ago I want a divorce. His response? I thought we were going to talk about it. Ah! He then walked in the house, kissed our son and left without a word. After that, he went on holiday for a week. He comes back and acts like nothing has been said. 
I'm at the end of my tether with all of this. I'm trying to get on with my life, keeping busy, getting out and making plans, but I really do miss him. I don't want this, but I'm stuck and sick of being in this limbo hell. He clearly doesn't want to be here, yet he won't let me go. I've seen a solicitor, as he clearly isn't going to, but haven't filed yet as I'm trying to get the funds together to pay for it. Why is he doing this to me? <sighs> recognize so, recognize any of this, Tara? Oh, too much. <laughs> the first thing I really wanted to talk about is the question, why is he doing this to me? Because that is a question that I had in my head so many times while I was going through this and how I hear and walk through so many clients with this question, the why question. And I think it's most important to really delve into why we want to know. And what I have found just for myself and working with clients is that we often ask the question why because we want to try to control. We want to know why because we think that if I know why, then I can say this thing and then they'll do X, Y, Z. And so it comes from a place of an attempt to control or change the situation. And I think too often that doesn't matter and isn't helpful for us. In this situation, clearly she would like to not be in it. I think most people would like to not be in the situation. So a better question is, what am I going to do about it? And the writer has taken some steps towards, you know, talking with a solicitor, potentially filing for a divorce. But there there just needs to be some more some more boundaries in place. And is this acceptable to you or not? And for me, when I when I read through this, I could relate a lot. And there's 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 some advice I'd love to give to the speaker. I don't know if you want to jump in, Andrew, but I feel a lot for this speaker and I do have specific suggestions, but I do want to first start on, we can't control or change this situation. So if we accept it, what are we going to do about it? Yeah. And I think that changing to, from why is he doing this? You know, I was thinking, you know, like, why do dogs chase cars, you know? Mm -hmm. Because even if they catch them, they're not going to know what to do with them. You know, he's just doing it because that's what he does. You know, this is this is his coping strategy. He's been doing it since time began. And, you know, even if you did know, and we said, well, it's his way of dealing with his mother, where does that take you? So the question, what are you going to do about it, is a much, much better question. So, and I think boundaries are important. Certainly, if he can just walk into the house, kiss your son, and then walk out again, it doesn't sound like the boundaries are particularly good. So where do you start with all of this? So in a situation like this, what I would highly recommend and I had to do myself is limit conversations just to children. When are you picking them up? When are you dropping them off? Clearly, he cannot discuss anything to do with the home, the finances, etc., so that should be dealt with, it sounds like, with a solicitor. Have the solicitor, you know, file for divorce. Have the solicitor reach out to his solicitor. Have those conversations done outside of your conversations with your ex. And there be no emotional conversations between you and your ex. Because, again, that comes back to trying to control or change. And the most important thing is, what are you going to do about it? Is this how you want to be treated in a relationship? Is this the kind of person you want to stay with, regardless of the fact that he's the father of your child? So the conversation goes from what time he's picking your son up to all the terrible things you've done. What do you do at that point? 
you don't respond. I mean, plain and simple, you don't respond. I, at one point during my separation slash divorce, we only communicated via email, you know, and that really allowed me for, for one, I had record of, you know, our communication that was able to be used in court, as well as he had to think about before he, there's just less thinking between a text message and sending it versus drafting an email and that kind of thing. That really allowed things to happen. Also, working with a solicitor will give you, you know, a parenting plan. So you'll know when he should pick up your child, when your child should come back. It gives you something to follow that's structured. If you're actually having the conversation on the telephone, do you hang up? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't even have conversations on the telephone. If it's that unhealthy, which clearly it sounds like it's not getting anywhere anyway, I wouldn't even have conversation on the telephone, especially because you can't use it when you're trying to go to court. What else would you recommend? The other thing I was going to mention is, you know, telling the son about the girlfriend. I know that desire. I know that. I know that. Wanting to tell my children, oh, you know whose fault it is? It's your daddy's. And your daddy's a bit of a jerk and hate him and love me, that kind of thing. I I understand that personally. It's not what's best for your son. It's just not. And it's also not any of your business. The relationship has effectively ended the way that it was. And so it's not your job to tell your son what his dad is doing. The best thing that you can do for yourself is really focus on making your son as safe and secure with you, because clearly he's not going to be feel very safe and secure with his dad. And you can't control that relationship. But having a clear parenting plan and following that will help you feel more comfortable and secure with that. But focus on being the best mom that you can for your son, because that's all that you can do. That's all you can control. Any final thoughts? Get support. <laughs> I, uh, I went to a divorce support group. There's many around the world that I suggest looking through. They're online. They're also in person. But having other people going through a similar thing that you can bounce ideas off of, that you can get support from, it sounds like you're going out and doing doing what you need to do to be happy. But this is about reclaiming your life and changing that for yourself. It doesn't matter that this man is still in love with you or he says he's still in love with you because his actions don't match his words. And his love isn't going to warm you, is it? No, it's not going to do much of anything. Honestly, she's, she's making it on her own already. It's about taking that final step to make it official. So thank you very much for being my witness for the second time. Instead of asking Mm -hmm. what makes your life meaningful, I thought I would ask you, what have you done that's been meaningful in the last 18 months since we've last spoken? Yeah. So I love this question in general because it really made me think about what is is meaningful in my life? So over the last 18 months since we last met, my daughter has turned two and my husband and I are now juggling keeping her at home because she didn't have a good experience at daycare. So we sort of juggle her in the day. We also have some help from a nanny. I think spending time with my children has been the most meaningful for me because it's, I don't feel like I'm doing service to other people if I'm also not practicing those things in my own life? Like, how do I actually be present in those relationships? How do I have hard conversations with my husband, for example? We've had to renegotiate division of labor. So being able to be present in those relationships has been really 
meaningful, especially with just a lot of changes. Uh, my husband's traveling again. Those kinds of things are very important and meaningful. As well as writing this book was a very meaningful event for me because I didn't feel when I was going through it that books about breakups or divorces really dealt with what I was personally going through and how you could so desperately miss someone that had made you so miserable. I didn't feel like there was enough out there for that. Um, they really are beautiful questions. I, I stole one of them with a client uh, just last night and it was, you know, it really opened up a lot of material. So, uh, oh, you know, thank, thank you for, for that. Unfortunately, this is where the conversation is going to have to end unless you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, because if you're a supporter or you directly subscribe through Apple or Spotify, you can hear the rest of the conversation. And actually, what Tara and I are going to be discussing next is overcoming victim mentality, because one of the things that's going to keep you trapped is if you have got victim mentality. So if you want to hear about that and the rest of the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.